0: Hi, I'm Adam Pacifico and welcome to The Leadership Enigma, a world-ranked, award-winning podcast that's insatiably curious as regards what leaders do, how they do it, and importantly, why. We'll delve into the human doing, but even deeper into the human being and the power of human-centered leadership to drive sustainable change. So whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, corporate executive, each week we speak to global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts and disruptors, as together we will discover that success leaves clues. This is very cool, actually. This does beat the studio. So So it's a little little bit different. I think we have to
1: sort of warn everyone, we can't see anything now, so... um, So it's a little weird, but it's actually it's nice because we just pretend they're not there. I can see now, but good good to be here. Thanks. So I suppose um, a good place to start would be would be maybe if you could introduce yourself, um, and and I'll I'll probably then do the same. Uh, I think we've got a good probably half half the guests are kind of yours and half are ours. So. Uh, So maybe we we sort of do that introduction first and and talk to us a little bit about uh, who you are and and the podcast.
0: It's an eclectic mix of people, that's for sure. Um, I'm Adam Pacifico, so I host the Leadership Enigma, and I I do know many people, which is great. And it's incredibly flattering to see so many people here tonight. Um, I started life as a barrister, as a trial lawyer in my professional career, so prosecuting and defending. But then an odd thing happened, and just after four years at the bar, Uh, I became an operational police officer with the Metropolitan Police. And I know that we've got people who have been guests who represent both those professions. And that was great fun. That was six years of uh, being operational, a couple of years in uniform on the mean streets of North London in the 1990s. And then four years on the proactive teams, which was great fun. And that was interesting because it was for many poacher turned gamekeeper. But I learned a lot about leadership, saw some of the best of human behavior, but also unfortunately saw some of the worst mm. of human behavior. And then there was no real plan to it. I think as opportunity knocked, I just stepped through the door. And then from there I went back to the bar. I was without a doubt a better prosecutor, having been operational for a few years. But I, I think I'd been exposed to experiential, really immersive learning, whether that was in a mock courtroom. I know myself is here. He and I contemporaries. We kind of grew up through the profession at the same time, you know, practicing trial skills within the mock court environment or having petrol bombs at my head uh, in Riot City. And I think there was something very powerful about that experiential and immersive learning. And we were asked to take that into the corporate sector. And that started the career within leadership development. So business schools, Indian ed techs, boutiques, and then latterly with Hydric and Struggles. But I think... That has really been a passion now, uh, the leadership of organisations and just the human-centred piece, which I know is the yep. focus for today. So that's a, it's a strange background, but in many ways, it's been, it's been a fun career. It's been a squiggly career. Yeah. And now, obviously, we know each other because of your, your podcast, do. which is 170? I think 168. I think Selva, who well, i mentioned, Selva right. was uh, the latest this week. That was episode 168. So who knew? That's amazing. So, and that's been in the last, what, two years? Uh, no, it's probably been about three years now. We ended up releasing one a week. Yeah. And so, yeah, well, we, I've had it the odd week off, I must admit, and but it's been about 100, 168 episodes sure. have gone out. So for,
1: for anyone who hasn't heard it, I think Adam's got some amazing episodes in there. And we're going to talk a bit about, about some of those. So it's actually a really fun opportunity because um I've done quite a few podcasts in, in the last certainly in the last year or so um and and uh Adams was, was certainly one of the most interesting I did and, and probably uh one of the most difficult ones that that I did it was quite an emotional for me anyway it was quite a, quite an emotional episode <laughs> I don't know if, uh, how it came across for you and I've had some really nice feedback on that so I suppose that's the uh, again if anyone has, you can go back and listen to that but but also um that's sort of very very naturally how, how we met and I think um we had such a good conversation that that's kind of that's just been going on since and i get the impression that's actually been the case with a lot of your guests i think the ceo series
0: was almost by accident for the leadership enigma and i know chris cordwell's here alexandra ortinger here uh, and it was interesting when you came in we did we had a really intimate and i would say vulnerable and courageous conversation which may have taken you by surprise and the reason i say have may have taken you by surprise was because prior to that I'd had three CEOs come into the studio and used a phrase similar to it's time to take the mask off and they were talking now about extreme vulnerability Mm. and I think that was something that you were very clearly evidencing when you came in but also you were very comfortable of having that very open conversation and we did we got to a point I remember you actually saying at one point actually no hang on I'm getting a little emotional here now. And I think when that happens, I'm always really humbled by people taking the time to come in, people having very, very, I think, human being focused conversations and sometimes telling me things which they hadn't even expected or anticipated to tell me. I remember had Chris Grant, OBE, actually came in and we had a conversation and suddenly told me about the fact he was uh, dealing with cancer.
1: Hmm.
0: And, and that had never been the intention to come out, but he just felt that the nature of the conversation or maybe the rapport that we had. And so there were loads of clues in all of the episodes where it just kept on focusing on the human being over the human doing. Mm. And I'm always incredibly impressed by what people have achieved. And, and you know, that is to be applauded. But I tend to spend more time on the human being side of the
1: of the human doing. And we did
0: that with you. Let's be honest, what you've achieved is incredible. But we actually talked about some of the challenges that had led up to that.
1: Which actually I think is for me the more interesting part you know it's it's like when you take my journey and maybe i'll introduce that in a second but uh over the last two decades it's sort of easy if you look backwards to see to see a path and everyone can kind of go okay that makes sense i see how that happens what you forget is all of the blind alleys along the way all the things that didn't work yeah. out um but but obviously those kind of thankfully uh, all our mistakes get lost to time so we don't we you know that you from the outside you don't see that it just looks like from day one it was it was destined to be a success um but those forks in the road, you know, they definitely were there. Well, you've got to tell
0: people a little bit about your
1: story, Tim. Right, so you, you were you were the, the crazy person initially.
0: You kept them going and going and going until suddenly, I still am. Well, that
1: too. Uh, no, I think yeah. So so for those of you who don't know me, I, I'm I'm Tim. I am the CEO and and founder of of Vorbos. We are today uh, a a fiber business-to-business fiber provider and and, uh, asset-owning network in London. We're centred around providing um, the very best in next-generation fixed connectivity to to London businesses. Um, And that's been a really interesting journey because my my background is sort of engineering and and computer science. Um, I've been coding since I was probably 14, 15 years old. Uh, I started the business as a software business, and then we've kind of gone through a lot of... uh, a lot of changes over the years we got into providing connectivity um in a big way uh starting maybe a decade ago and then um really it was in post 2019 and 2020 when uh when we had a massively scaled business um and and became an asset owner and that's been a, a really interesting journey because we, we had I think around 25 people in, in during the pandemic at the start of the pandemic in 2020. By the end of the pandemic, we were we were over 250 people, and today we're sort of just on just under 400. Um, but it was I think one of the things that enabled us to scale was that we had this uh, amazing foundation of you know 15 years of figuring out how to do things right. And once you have that foundation, it's very easy to build a structure on top of it. And I think that's a benefit we had that a lot of kind of scale up businesses don't have. Um, so yeah, I, I, started the business, um, in 2006, still running it very, very different business today. Um, and it's a really exciting place to be in, in the, in, in London, we probably have, um, uh, you know, the incumbent sort of former monopoly of, of BT that, that probably still has something in the order of, of three quarters to 80% market share. Um, and we're probably the only, the only player that's really gonna gonna kind of hold their feet to the fire and, and challenge that challenge that um, huge market share, and um, yeah, it's it's been a really exciting journey for me. See, I was interested to talk to you because oh my god, I'm turning the tables again, aren't I? Because in many ways,
0: you were a disruptor in quite a, a traditional sector. But what also interested me was that you went from what a dozen to twenty people to just nearly mm-hmm. four hundred. That's a massive challenge for a CEO who now has to be a significant people leader. And I remember you saying to me the statistics would bear out that you were probably dealing with people who were having a significant crisis in their life at work just by the very nature of them being human beings. And we talked about that. Mm. And I think that was also fascinating to say if you have a tribe of people who you are responsible for, there's probably a certainty that at least one or more is having a significant human challenge. And But you had a thought on that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was um, when we hit it was it was like a solemn day. You know, I start every morning I wake up and I think about the people. Right. That's what genuinely what brings me to work. And, um, you know, and and all of my team, some of whom are here will know. And I've said it many times. We will build the fiber network. We largely have. We will be a success. We will win. Um, I truly believe that. Uh, So actually, it's about winning in a way we can be proud of. And, and making sure we take care of our people along the way and we build a legacy. And, and it's not about a legacy for legacy's sake, but build an organization that can also survive. Because actually it's very easy to be a challenger. Uh, it's actually very hard to build an organization that has longevity. And part of that is engineering in the ability to adapt and change into the way your organization works. But so the, the people's the kind of the bit that brings you back to it. If we didn't build this, somebody else would have. Right. right? And, and I think we all at some level do struggle to be passionate about fiber. It's only so much you can you can really care about that, right? But I think what's actually interesting is is the people. So, um, but 220 people. I remember when we kind of crossed that threshold, and a lot of people here will remember it. it Was for me, it was I don't want to say solemn, but it was a very serious point because it's a magic number. 220 in in the UK is about the number of working days a year. So if you think about it, in every you know, as someone that ran a very small resource-constrained business for years, suddenly in one turn of the clock you have an entire human year lived out, working year lived out in your company. And similarly, when you pass 365 people, you now have a whole calendar year lived out in every day in your business. And so, yeah, the statistics would serve that, which is that on any given day, and I've said this many times, on any given day, you probably have one person in your company that's suicidal. You probably have 10 people with a stomach ache. You probably have, I don't know, five people who are depressed. Um, Equally, you've got a whole bunch of people who are super happy. And somebody loses a significant family member, uh, you know every week or so so things that would happen to you once a year are happening somewhere in your business every single day and then you scale that up and it's terrifying right so you kind of as we approach 400 and you know 440 people you can sort of then say okay let's double that number now um and then you start thinking well that's happening kind of on my watch that's happening in an environment i created and one that you know i started this business in a bedroom in my parents house so there's that you know i had no vision for i'm gonna have hundreds of employees one day. And, and I, I feel super accountable for that. And that's where the human-centered piece comes in, for sure. But I'm not going to let you turn the tables. Sorry. it's um, <laughs> so, a force of habit, isn't it? Yeah. So I suppose what interested me was actually a chance. that I, I was super intrigued because I came in, I talked to you, and I had that thing where, you, you know, I'm sure many people have had this. We used to have one of those conversations that I normally ask a lot of questions. And then I sort of leave the room and I'm like, well, firstly, I feel like I've been in therapy for an hour. And it's exhausting. <laughs> Secondly, um, you know, I just had a whole ton of questions. So... I mean, maybe to start, is just talk us through what got you into doing the podcast. Uh, The pandemic? Mm -hmm. Who remembers the pandemic?
0: We've all got short memories, haven't we? I remember lockdown number one very well. I I lost a parent just at the start of the pandemic, so that was a difficult time uh, then. And then the pandemic kicked in, which we had never really experienced before, obviously. I remember someone said a phrase to me that I think is incredibly true. They said, when you press the pause button on a computer, it stops. But when you press the pause button on a human being, that's when we start to think. And I think the pandemic may have pressed the big red pause button on everybody. And everyone had a deeply personal experience, and, and I'm included. And I think we, we may have touched upon that in in our conversation. And I panicked because I thought, you know, I can't get on planes, trains, and automobiles. I can't actually be an educator. I can't mm-hmm. I can't connect with people. I don't know how to learn. I don't know how to stay valuable. I don't know how to continue with a network. And I genuinely panicked. And so I watched way too many YouTube videos at the... In the middle of the night, genuinely. And I said to my wife, I'm going to start a podcast. She said, what do you know about podcasting? And I went, not a lot. And I just tried to learn and learn and learn. And what I did was I reached out to a lot of people who were also in the pandemic, but Mm. they were very good friends with the network. And I just said to them, listen, I've just got this idea of a podcast to try and stay connected, learn, just try and create something in some ways, just try and stop us all getting kind of crazy. And all those people said, yes, before I knew it, I had 16, episodes in the tank and in fact kevin o'leary is here who was number one podcast he's a a dear friend so i remember ringing up and he just went yeah sure let's do it and i needed that because i had no idea what i was doing so i needed people who would trust me and say let's just have a conversation we were all stuck at home and before i knew it there were 16 episodes i think i only realized much later and i've talked about this more and more now is that i was I had a teenager who was also struggling significantly with mental health. There's a good news story on that is that she's now thriving in Thailand. My wife has gone there today actually to see her. But things got pretty dark and pretty bleak. And I think the podcast had become a coping mechanism as well without me realising it. In some ways, I had used it in order to focus on it, in order to try not to focus on some of the things that we were dealing with as a family. Was it a
1: distraction or do you think it was also just... Maybe that hu- that human connection. I, I think it was, at the time, not conscious. I think it was a, a, gr-
0: a huge distraction. But also, I think I was looking for something, and without a doubt, now I'm understanding that the podcast is probably one of the biggest teachers for me in relation to who I am, the skill set that I have or don't have. And I'm learning all the time. So I'm genuinely humbled by every single guest that comes in, and I learn something, and I feel that there's a value to each and every conversation. Right. So, so the whole I- thing was... In some ways, it,
1: by accident, I don't know, but it was it was generated predominantly by the pandemic. So that leads me very nicely, I suppose, because I was going to really the, the big question I wonder is you have this, you know, I've 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 managed to listen to quite a few episodes. You're my number one listener now. Yeah, maybe, and um, and it's it's great. Like I'm not a big podcast guy either, so it's actually quite fun to to. That's high praise. Yeah, I think I think that's like fifty percent of all the podcasts I listened to this year, um, but uh you're in the enviable position of having these really interesting conversations with some really really fascinating people and i think your 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 guests are super diverse so i guess what are the themes you keep coming back to because i've seen some patterns but i'm kind of curious what's going on in your head when you're when you're navigating that because you have you know it's a whirlwind right like i came I, i turned up to your studio in north london kind of came in we we had no prep, sat down, you know, which is the the best way, I think. We we sat down. We had it like, straight into a pretty deep conversation for just under an hour, I think. Yeah. And then sort of shook hands and went, that was brilliant. Um, And, and you know, and off I went. And I, I also, think we even hugged at the end, actually. Yeah, too. yeah. Uh, rare for me. Yeah, sorry. You're yeah. not a hugger, but there we go. Uh, no, it was great. It was an awkward hug, maybe. uh yeah, I was just, like, just trying not to, like, <laughs> dampen your sweater at the time. Yeah. So, um, no, but... so. So and then I sort of go in. I think actually that's amazing because in, in in that hour there were so many places we could have gone, um, and and I think and I think on balance what, what we talked about was was brilliant. And I guess the question is how are you how are you doing that? So how are you? What are you finding yourself centering on really quickly? You get in front of somebody really really interesting. You have an hour of their time. Uh, how how does that work?
0: I think I have to probably look back at the training as a trial lawyer and the training as a police officer. Which has led to me to be insatiably curious. Hmm. Uh, I am deeply interested by people because I've seen the great and the not so great. And we're all flawed, but we're all wonderful at the same time. And I think that curiosity has just come out. And I say to people, and some people think, I suppose I'm just, maybe I'm not prepping a lot. I just have a very loose structure in my mind. And I just say, just have a conversation, you take the lead, and I'm going to follow. And I will just be curious along the way. And it served me really well for a hundred and I think we've got 175 episodes in the tank, and it just seems to work. Hmm. So maybe I've found where all that skill set will lend itself, but I'm definitely seeing some things without a shadow of a doubt. And the thing that has come to the surface is that of human-centered leadership. So if you said to me, what is the big differentiator? You know, I still get a a chance to work with large corporations all over the world with Hydric, which is an incredible pleasure and a privilege, but I say to people now, you know, whether I'm working in international law firms or accountancy firms or tech whatever it might be, these organizations are filled with gifted, technically gifted people in relation to their subject matter expertise. But I tend to say now those are table stakes. Mm-hmm. Because there are great talented people in each of these law firms, in each of these professional services firms, in each of these tech firms, whatever it might be. But the differentiator I think time and time again is human centered leadership that came out when I wrote the book in 2020. Mm-hmm. And I think that's come out in the conversations. And it's that ability to be, do you know, I spoke to John Amici, John Amici. I, I interviewed for the book and he's come onto the show twice. John is a former NBA player. He's a psychologist here. He's the author of The Promises of Giants. And I've had really good conversations with John. And He has a very, very strong point of view. And he got me thinking because I'm trying to understand what's the definition of leadership. It's very personal. Now, if you type that into Google, there's a problem because you'll get 1,950,000,000 responses, which is deeply unhelpful. But he said to me, leadership is the promise of a lived experience for those around you. And that really resonated with me because of something that was said to me by an amazing mentor who unfortunately passed away. He was a larger than life, Floridian trial lawyer, who I was incredibly lucky to know for four years as a, as a young lawyer. And when I got my first job as a young lawyer with a leadership angle to it, I told him, I was very excited, I told him, and this was before I was married, and he said, congratulations, and I never forget what he said to me. I wrote it in my book, and I I always lead with it. He said, the children of the people you lead will know your name. Mm -hmm. He said, in what context is entirely up to you? And I always say to people, you know, how many of you have got kids, and you might put your hand up, and I say, be honest with me, your kids know your boss's name, don't they? And people always look at their shoelaces <laughs> but it's so true so yep. leadership is incredibly personal and a lot of the work we do now is helping people understand what does that mean to them as a leader and then what is that shadow that they cast that you cast throughout your organization what is the lived experience that you give people around you and that's not just in
1: relation to the 400 or so ball boss team; it's actually the wider i think perhaps, stakeholder perhaps ever well. the optimist i look at that this the same the other way as well which is you know that's it's a terrifyingly huge opportunity to create massive positive impact, right? Yeah. And I think that's something that we, um, so I digress slightly, but we have kind of two main kind of promises, commitments that we make to all of our staff. And the challenge I kind of give all of our leaders, which is uh, to never lose track of the individual. And by that, I mean, we don't use groups. We don't use labels. We don't, we sort of, we try and optimize the organization so that everybody can actually have a unique experience. So it's not, Let's find one way to solve the problem. It's let's have let's have policies that are um, more like Ten Commandments. You know that, that give people that constitutional guidance, but yeah. allows them a lot of room for interpretation to customize and personalize the experience. And and by the way, when we talk about generational stuff, that's hugely important for the incoming generations. Um, so we have that sort of don't lose track of the individual. Um, and then secondly, we say we want to make this the best job you you ever have, not not the best job you've ever had, but that you ever have. And the, and for me, the, the sort of reference or the frame for that is, you know, you think about, or I think about sitting and chatting to my my granddad when I was a kid and talking to him about his career, uh, his, his entire career. And, and mm-hmm. you know, there was always that sort of one job that he would gravitate towards mm-hmm. that with the power of hindsight at, you know, 86 years old or whatever, he can say, that was the best thing I did. And I actually went on and did another 30 years after it, but it was that thing. That was, that shaped me. And, And for me, that's this terrifying pressure that we have an organization where, you know, we can create that for potentially a lot of people where they go, this was where I learned my trade, or this is where I got comfortable public speaking, or this is where I learned the power of vulnerability, or this is where I learned to lead. And I look across our business and I think, you know, we're going to, we're going to create probably hundreds and thousands of experiences. And then there are people who are going to go and open restaurants and become team leaders at massive corporations or they're going to go you know, all sorts of things they're going to go on and do and the way in which they run those teams or the yeah. way in which they talk to their children or whatever it might be is going to in some way be informed by us you know the butterfly effect of that is it's impossible that what we do at work has zero impact right but but this the amount of impact is kind of up to us
0: and that in some ways reminds me and, and rakelli ficardi is is here as well and that was one of the most recent episodes when she really is the expert on multi-generational mm-hmm. issues and talked about, about post-pandemic purpose is perhaps the glue for all the generations where perhaps it was the divide. And I found that fascinating and, and with the research that she's done. And, and that is something now that as a CEO or as a leader in any business,
1: purpose is enormous. But that was, and I remember that discussion, that but that was also around this point that it's, it's, it's a unique in that it was an event that we all shared together, right? so that was the kind of the premise is that right yeah and i mean so many things came out of that and, and please
0: people check that one out because the research is available as well via rakelly but i think for me and we had we did some clips we were going to play but unfortunately we can't play there's an irony there that we're sat in a cinema um, but we we will we will get those clips to you um, but one of the interesting things that came out of that conversation was the real need now to be empathetic and step into the shoes of the other generation mhm and I remember, I think I, I used the, the term snowflake, and Ricketti quite jumped on me very quickly. Can't say that. I'll stop you there. And strawberries, et cetera. But actually, she was great in relation to helping me understand just the sheer resilience, perhaps, of the millennials. But there's very different experiences, but also the very different expectations. And then that's difficult, because you're about to get five generations in an organization for the first time ever. So for you as a CEO, that's a challenge and an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of
1: the things I think that
0: is a hot topic right now.
1: Yeah, and I think the danger is a lot of the conversations you hear about it are people complaining, complaining about, about Gen Z, right? But but actually, the challenge is that they also all complain about everybody else. So it's it's a universal issue, which is the generations are failing to understand each other a little bit. Yeah, don't ask me the date ranges again because I got them wrong actually in the episode and got... <laughs> uh, so I'm not even going
0: to try and get that. But I, think, I just think with all the conversations that I've had, something really fascinating has come out of each and every one. And I'm still just very very curious in relation to people coming in and, and talking about what they've learned and sometimes they've learned things from the most curious of experiences i'll share one with you we just Good. just get to a strength because we did have a clip of this as well stuart pierce came in stuart pierce who's the premier league footballer he's talk sport pundit he was manager of west ham um i was, I was a little bit frightened actually when he came in because you know his, his nickname is psycho um, <laughs> He doesn't know, I actually met Stuart years and years and years ago on the Michael Parkinson show. I was not on the show, but I happened to be there with Michael Parkinson's agent. I remember he came in, and what I remember thinking, well, his thighs are huge. I just remember that. And so he, he came into the studio, and he was great fun, but I thought, I think this is almost boyhood hero. I've watched him play, play football so many times, and listened to him you know, as a pundit. And it was really interesting, because obviously we got to the topic of Italian 90 and the fact that he missed the penalty and we were put out in the semi-final but there was a real expectation by the way we would have won that tournament and he's been asked this question lots and lots of times and actually his biggest learning went to something completely different and he told the story that after that desperately disappointing defeat he got called in for a random drug test and he went to the room where he had to provide that sample there was another England player who I can't remember and two German players he was in that room for two hours and he sat in absolute silence the German players out of respect for him knowing that he was really in a dark place having just missed a penalty and England being knocked out and he says one of his lasting lessons and memories was that of the humility of the German players at his lowest ebb And not only was that really powerful for Stuart, but you might remember it, I think in 1996, when actually in the quarterfinals we played Spain and he scored the goal and we put Spain out. And everyone was going crazy and celebrating in the faces of Spain on the pitch. And he didn't. He remembered that lesson and he remembered now it was his opportunity to be humble in the face of the defeat on Spanish players. And, And again, I just thought that was a fascinating recollection and powerful lesson off the back of an iconic moment where people just focus on the penalty itself. But it was actually the events that took place afterwards that he really mm. remembers and relishes in
1: many ways. So I think there's a big lesson there about this, the power of empathy and leadership, right? Which is, which is the ability to sort of pause and, and look at the people around you and understand how they're feeling. And I
0: think I'm starting to try and look at what are the components of human-centred leadership. I know, know Joe here, Joe Fredericks is here, he's doing a lot of work, his organisation on human-centred leadership. This was immediately you, the topic of this conversation. And empathy is one of the components that I'm, I'm seeing come out. I'll tell you one other thing that has really struck me from a number of interviews, and that if you are leading in any way, there may be people here in the audience thinking to themselves, well, hang on, I've got no direct reports. But actually, you're still leading, because without a shadow of a doubt, you're communicating, inspiring, galvanizing, and leading people over which you have absolutely no direct authority. That goes for you, Tim, as a Mm -hmm. CEO, and it goes for every single one of us in this room. And I think one of the things that's really, really come out, and it was said to me again by a guest on the show, is that leadership is energy expensive. And I said, what do you mean by that? And I think this goes to the heart of this conversation, is that it's never been more important now for a leader to connect, reconnect, and stay connected with the people that they lead, perhaps even more so than the pandemic. And I saw amazing examples of that, and I'll I'll give you two very quick ones. One of them was an incredible leader I met who was Indian-born, Dubai-based, and we met in Atlanta, go figure, right? And we were there with the XCOM team, the board, and about the top eighty. And I knew for a fact that he had run the highest performing factory of about nine hundred people, mm-hmm. and also his employee engagement scores were were off the roof. And I have, you know, I had the chance to meet him, and it just happens it was lunchtime, and uh, he actually had a packed lunch. He had a packed lunch with it, which was strange. We were in a hotel. And he said, oh, it's just like, just like back at home. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, every single day my wife makes me a packed lunch, but she makes me a packed lunch at for two. And every day I go onto the shop floor and I try and find someone who I don't know or I haven't connected with recently, and I ask if I can share my packed lunch with them. I'm like, wow. I said, how long have you been doing that for? He said, 15 years. 15 years. That's pretty cool. And that's what I mean by leadership is energy expensive. And then another very good buddy of mine took a very senior role within the public sector, suddenly had 7,000 people to look after. And I remember going to see him. Yeah, I interviewed him for the book and he's going to come on the podcast soon. And I remember going to see him in his office and he had a little A5 black book and he was very excited about it and he pulled it off the shelf and he showed it to me and there's all these coloured post-it notes sticking out. And I said, what's this? He said, well, every day I have 15 minutes with somebody within the organisation. He says, my." The team here try and organise that and just have an open anyone. And I just chat with them and I just really listen and I just make some notes to try and understand what it's like to to live and work within this organisation. He said because I'm new. I said wow, but this book was. Full. I said how long have you been doing this? He said I've done it every single day for the six months I've been in post. Now bearing in mind it's a five year post, I said how long are you do this for? He said every day for the five year post. Mm. That I find extraordinary in relation to a leader saying this is going to be energy expensive, but I'm up for that. The connection reconnection and staying connected to the people that i'm giving a lived experience
1: to and i just think that's been probably magnified and amplified by the pandemic yeah 100 i think i'm very lucky that i kind of can't avoid those conversations that no matter where i'm walking in town i sort of passed <laughs> one of our teams doing some work so it's cross the cross the oh, road. You might see them all the time, right? With the Vorbox exactly. vans. So you fantasy. cross cross the road, stop, into rudely interrupt their work, and uh, and have a little chat, um, which is which is always good fun. But uh, yeah, it's sort of hard to avoid. But I think I think it's super important that you you know we recently uh, have grown our senior leadership team, and uh, one of the interesting bits of feedback was you know one, one of the one of the new members of the S L T kind of scratching his head and going, well, I was kind of surprised that we were talking about a very specific issue with one employee out of four hundred. Hmm. In the two hours we spend together as the SLT every week, why, why, you know, and and then actually kind of reflecting and going, but you know what, in no other company I've worked for would that issue have have bubbled up that far, that quickly, and and been discussed. And and my f- point was, well, my feedback on that was, yeah, it's that's kind of what keeps us connected, keeps us close to the coal face, keeps everyone, you know, reminds everyone that at the end of the day, there are hundreds of people yeah. working in this organisation, and we have to be conscious of that as well as you know dealing with the big strategic issues and, and the things we you know we, we would otherwise maybe conceptually think are important i think one of the other things that's really jumped out at me is again i'm talking post-pandemic
0: the post the pandemic was a deeply personal experience for me it really was and i anticipate for everybody and one of the things that i think also came out was now a need for organizations to be a force for good to actually do something mm-hmm. above just the product or service how to how to create a world better led above and beyond as well, the governments and regimes that, that we live under. And I think I've been blown away by how much individuals have done when they have no resources. So the resourcefulness off the scale, the resources zero. And I'll give you one example, because as we were preparing for this, it was, I was going back to the episode, I was just thinking, oh, this is just blowing me away in relation to the conversations. I chatted to Oliver Perkovich, created something called Skateistan? You might remember this yeah, episode. Feeling so he goes is the to one. Kabul in 2007 with his girlfriend, who has a job out there, and he has no job out there. He's a skateboarder. He takes, I think, three skateboards with him, and he thinks, "I'll go and I'll check it out, see what happens." Kabul, and let's think, there was a lot of international activity in Kabul at the time, and he goes there. He doesn't really know what to do with himself, so he starts skating, and very quickly he becomes a local attraction because no one has seen skateboarding, especially the children. And he's found an empty fountain, and he's skateboarding in the fountain. He's becoming a bigger and bigger attraction to the kids. And they start to want to skate, and he embraces that. And long story, sure, um, between 2007 and 2009, he started uh, skater's Stan. And he was trying to get the kids to do this, but trying to also convince them to go to school. So he was paying the kids $1.00. Well, he had no money at the time, literally $1 to say, can I pay you to help teach other kids, but on the proviso that you also do your schooling as well. Well, long story short, he has a series of bizarre and fortuitous conversations. One with the president of the Olympic Committee, and then with the governments, I think, of Canada, Denmark. So uh, There are others as well, so mm. forgive me for getting that wrong. And he ends up with the largest indoor facility in Afghanistan for skateboarding thousands and thousands of kids passing through, 50% of which are girls. Because at the and age it was of 12, indoor, so indoor, so the girls could do it, right? So the That's, girls could do it, because you, yeah. you have to separate the boys and the girls after the age yeah. of 12. And it was just cutting through the complete socioeconomic divide and religious divide. And thousands and thousands of children were coming through Skateistan. He's now working on, I think it's something like 850 projects over 100 countries. One bloke with a skateboard. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It was extraordinary in relation to what he was able to achieve, and he had no resources at all, literally nothing. He, he didn't have more than three skateboards. He literally had to beg, borrow, and steal, and in some ways, as he went home and came back, he brought some more skateboards with him. And then he just convinced people of the benefit of skating in order to cut through the divides. And, and now it's a, it's a global project. And I talk to people like that, and I'm just blown away about how they're able to do that, that resourcefulness,
1: which is overshadowing the resources which are zero. It was a great episode, that one, and worth well worth listening to because I think it's also the thing I reflected on listening to that episode was he he just talks about it like it was a completely normal thing to do, yeah. So like it's just like every day, right? Just like now it's a global movement, and he's like, but yeah, it's just. It's just yeah. And I love it. He turned up as well,
0: and there's like all these skateboards behind him, so it's like super cool. Um, and that was a strange part because I'm, I'm there are people in this audience who I'm meeting, having had them as guests, but that was during the pandemic. Mm. So Camilla's here as well, and you know, we'd never met. And she said, we'd never met. She goes, I thought you were in America. But we took so many things for granted. We just connected with people over the internet and we had no idea where everyone was. So that was fascinating as well. And even today, a great reminder, that was a strange time. Mm. It really was. Um, but it, this has been an amazing opportunity to just talk about maybe the rich learning. And, and I hope we'll, but we should also mention Gary Rich. Mm-hmm. It's one For me, it's one of the standouts. That's for me um, definitely as well. We've got to talk about, Gary Ridge was, the, for the, I think for 26 years, was CEO and chairman of WD-40. We all know WD-40. And I remember chatting to Gary, who is just very, very funny. And I said to him, oh God, I know WD-40. That's the iconic can, it's, uh, it's oil in the can. He said, I'll oh, stop you there. He said, it's not just oil in the can. He said, we make memories. It just happens to be oil in the can. And when he said that, I just froze and I thought, oh my God, that's so right. Yeah. Because my one of my earliest memories is me crashing my bike, screwing up the chain and my dad fixing it and using WD-40. And I thought, you're right. It's about memories. a little red lid. Oil in a can. Yeah. And he has a maniacal focus on culture. So he takes that very, very seriously to the extent, and again, we'll send you the clip. He has something called the Maniac Pledge uh, where everybody who comes into WD-40 signs the Maniac Pledge because he has... A maniacal focus on culture. Well, if you see the statistics, the employee engagement, they're, they're through the roof. And there's a very specific question they ask people, You know, do you love working at WD-14? It's something like 98% of people love working for the organization. No one is called a manager, everyone is called a coach. So again, it, for me, it was an example of someone who's taking their leadership and their role at how incredibly seriously and putting huge amounts of effort, not just into the operational running of the business, but how do I in some ways create that lived experience for those for those around me? And now he stepped down and he's, he's doing all kinds of And I think there's, other there's
1: hope for us yet, because I, I feel like the lesson from that is the more boring the product, the more you have to focus on the culture, right? So Oil in the can, we're, we're right? going to be fine. But I think what's cool about Gary is you listen to it now, and in some ways that that's a, it's a great episode, but it's also a touch unremarkable in the modern climate where a lot more people are talking about culture so many of the things he says resonate with the things that we already do and the things that we're doing but you have to remember he was doing it way before everybody else yeah and i think when you if you do go and listen to that episode and i really recommend it just bear in mind that he was doing this what 25 years before people were talking about it yeah and he was massively ahead of the curve on that and i think and i think when you when you put it in that context it's super cool because it's because it was just, just the difficulty of defending that to a board or defending that to your investors, at a time when people were really not thinking about the importance of culture.
0: Check it out because he also introduced you to Al, the soul sucking CEO. Yeah, it's great. He's uh, nemesis
1: in some ways, but he's passionate about about positive cultures. All right. Well, I think we could keep talking for hours, but um, thank you so much, Adam. I think this has it's been brilliant. It's been fun to to kind of literally put the spotlight on you for a little bit.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it. it's like a stroll down memory lane. So much appreciated. Thank you. Thanks very much, everybody. Hopefully we'll see you up. Join us again next week for more curiosity and insight with the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with me on LinkedIn or visit us at www.leadersenigma.com. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on all your major podcast platforms and on our dedicated YouTube channel. Thanks again for joining the community.